Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Norris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Izzy Sussy. Hello. 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 Can we do do what you're best known for? We're probably best known for Peep Show, show, and also for excellent stand-up and doing something that very few stand-ups do well, which is mixing music and comedy and observation in a way that doesn't make you want to chew your own fist off. (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? Comedy music is really hard, isn't it? When I first started, I didn't do any songs. I did songs on their own for a long time, but not on the comedy circuit. And then when I started on the comedy circuit, the open mic comedy circuit, I didn't do the songs for like a year because I thought I needed to learn how to be a Uh stand-up. So I used to do awful material about <laughs> Paula Abdul saying opposites attract he's a dog she's a human um, <laughs> something like that um, and this long bit about BAE systems which is like my political bit um, where I just read out uh, a tube advert and then said you know didn't even really <laughs> oh god BAE systems yeah, stand up noise what's that all about you know <laughs> And um, then after a year, I started to do songs, which looking back were not great songs, the best I could do at the time. And they were so much better than my material. And everyone who I was kicking with at the time was like, why haven't you been you know, doing these songs all along? That's obviously where you're happiest. There's a reticence when someone wanders on stage with a guitar around their neck that a lot of people in the audience go, oh, no. Yeah. And yeah. are worried it's going to be embarrassing because it can go wrong. It can. Yeah. I think you have to get to the point where you have no choice but to go on stage with a guitar around your neck. And then you don't <laughs> think about what you're like... 
I can't do my BAE systems bit. How do you do that? Do you actually literally have to permanently attach the guitar to yourself? So yes, you don't yes. have any options. That's to get a very out good idea. Like when you get your eyebrows tattooed yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit I guess like... you could sew it to a shirt. And... I remember seeing Sleeper once on Top of the Pops and Louise Wenner, who plays the guitar and always played the guitar, they'd gone, it would be better if you were more like sort of Debbie Harry and just fronted the band. And they took her guitar off her and it was like watching someone. She'd obviously had no movement training or anything. She'd go, I don't know what to do with my hands. Yeah. It was like bad wedding photos. Yeah. And I really felt for her. Yeah. Ellis, my boyfriend, is a stand-up as well. And he was gigging in Liverpool once. And I was just there. I was filming Shameless. And I had a weekend off. And I, it was quite full-on Shameless. So I was like, right, I'm not going to do anything for the whole weekend. I'm just going to get drunk and have, have fun in Liverpool. Really like Liverpool. So I got to the gig. And then Susan Murray, who was supposed to be on, got a migraine and just came up to me and went, I can't go on. I'm really ill. Can you go on? Because you're a stand-up. And I was like... I haven't got the guitar. I haven't got the guitar. <laughs> and I was like a robot. That, and I was like, uh, I haven't got the guitar. And they, and they found a guitar backstage with no strap on it. So I had to do... Because <laughs> oh now I do do bits in between songs which are talking finally it took me years to be able to do it um it's sort of meld the two together but so I would do the talky bits I didn't know what to do with my hands at all Ellis said I was I just looked like a puppet like I was just moving my arms around but you do rest your hand you know I always rest my right hand on it and often my left hand on the and often I actually now finger pick under things that I'm saying without realizing it again that mm. took years to it's do like my, it's um, like uh, the wonder years yeah exactly. Constantly constantly. Constantly. That's yeah. when I realised. The narrative that's going on my, in my head the whole time, I've got finger pick, I'm, there's finger picking going on underneath this. Right it's, now. It, yeah, it's in a major chord. You're yeah. looking back. Yeah. <laughs> if it goes it's an A, minor, isn't it? It's an A, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it's an A, a and D, yeah. yeah. You will want, want us if it goes minor, because then, then obviously a dog's going to die. I'll tell you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, we, yeah. Can, we, can we do the nerdy bit here? What's, what, uh, what guitars have you owned? Well, actually, I'm not really um, that geeky about guitars. And I, I've just written a song about how my daughter has put, she's three, loads of things into my guitar. So <laughs> I've got a, I've got a Martin guitar now, a three-quarter size Martin. Oh, oh they're and beautiful. I've got one of them. They're yeah, wonderful They're lovely, guitars. aren't they? I had to get a lighter guitar because I sometimes get back problems and I was always carting the big guitar around and yeah. when I used to have a day job, I'd sort of take it all the way to South London to the Oddbins warehouse where I worked and then to a gig in like Stoke. And I'd be like, my back is killing. So I got this three-quarter size. That's um, the best one that I've ever owned. The other thing about those Martins, the, the three-quarter size Martins, are they're so easy to play. I know. You're completely sport. And I used to switch from my Martin at home to a stage guitar, which was a proper full-sized Yamaha. And I'd go, God, this thing's enormous. I've got tight. You feel like you've got tiny little trump hands and you can't yes. play it. You feel like an idiot. You lose all that stretch. I know. I know. It's much easier to do. I can't, I'm not very good at bar chords and I sort of find them much easier on three quarter yeah. size. Cause it's Cheating. Yeah, Why do they make it it's like, I don't like it because it's like a, a girl's guitar, but that's not true. I think when I first got it, I felt like it was a bit like, oh, I've got, you know, my version of, it's yeah. like a Russian doll, like the like, second like one the down. Like the Nerf Rebel, like not a proper Nerf gun, but one of those pink bows and yes, arrows. exactly. Yeah. Oh no, I've got the pink one. Yeah. They're songwriters' yeah. guitars, I think. Yeah. basically you, the implication is you're sitting down for ages playing this and yeah, you're going to wear yeah, your yeah. hands out. Hey, I'm in here for the long haul. I'm finger picking 24 hours a day. Yeah, I'm gonna... busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah. also it's, a, it's a Martin. It's like going, I've only got a small Rolls Royce. That's yeah, fine. that's true. That's true. <laughs> 
it's like I can't get this stuff out of the guitar. So she's posted it all through the hole. We've got these cupcake games that everyone seems to have now. We've got two of them. So it's all these cardboard cupcakes that are about an inch squared. So there must be 18 of them in the guitar that she's posted through between the strings. And then a rubber ball and other small things from games like counters and dice and stuff. So I was like, oh, God, am I going to I'm gonna take all the strings off to get... And I hate changing strings. I don't do it enough. Yeah. I really don't. So then I just thought, oh, well, I'll just write a song about how there's loads of stuff in the guitar um, during which I can shake, shake the, the guitar. guitar. Yeah. It's, it's a percussion. It's a maraca on the guitar. Yes, exactly. Do you know the guy at the Martin factory in Nazareth can string a guitar in under 30 seconds? All six strings? Yep. Like stripping a rifle. Like a marine. That's I mean, amazing. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I always remember seeing Phil Nichol when I first lived in London after I graduated from drama school in sort of 2000 onwards. We used to go to East Dulwich comedy all the time because I lived in East Dulwich. And um, I used to watch Phil Nichol so many times that I knew his set off by heart. But he absolutely hammers his guitar and it, a string broke and he did it so niftily you didn't even notice. And it, wow. it was like that. You, you know, he just carried on talking, got the, he got a new string out of his guitar case and, he, and I was just like, fuck. If it's me, I have to watch a YouTube tutorial every time. I can never remember <laughs> which way round it goes when I'm winding it the wrong way. And it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you used to um, fantasise about that, just going, one day I will, I will have a roadie who does this. And yeah. go, maybe it's one of those things like accepting you will never play the Dane. One point, if you, if you play the guitar, you go, one day you go, do you know what? I'm never going to have someone who does this for me. Yes. I'm not that sort of a musician. <laughs> yes. Or someone who just sits in the wings in case you break a yeah. string. No, that, that point at which your career would have gone in a direction where someone would do this. It's like having a butler. I know. You're never going to have a butler. I know. It's like when you start going in for auditions to play mums, which happens. <laughs> that is, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Lots of female actors talk about this. Yeah. Where they go to the point, they go, I've, suddenly I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm going for the mum roles. And in Tellyland, I think you're still in your 20s when you're 32. Yeah, I think yeah. you, you can sort yeah. of. It means that the men you're playing opposite are forty. That has to be this eight-year gap. You know, as long as they're forty and you're thirty-two, it's fine. And then something happens. Suddenly, you're going in. You're mum, a mum of eight kids or something. You think, hang on, I've not even played one myself yet. Yeah, yeah. We're all playing mums, but we're playing young mums. Yes, young sassy mums. No one's been nan yet. Can I can I ask you can ask you an acting question? Because I don't act because I can't act. But I'm fascinated by it. And it occurred to me, when you're on Peep Show, you're kind of breaking one of the first rules of acting, which is staring down the lens, isn't it? So is it a completely different acting experience to do that straight down the lens than it is to just work off the people you're in the scene with? Yeah, it is. And it, you really do sort of relish that read that you do first. Oh, um, right. Because you that's the only sort of human reaction you're going to get. So I think I used to pay much more attention to what, say, David was doing or whatever, because you only really got a couple of chances God. that, you know... You're basically you're acting, you read like green it. screen acting almost. It's like yeah. acting against uh, CGI characters that aren't there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You'd, yeah, you'd read it. We'd read it through looking at the scripts, and then we'd block it, and we read it again. And then we'd show it to the crew, as you know it, and then that would be the third time that I'd get to do it with a person. Then once we'd shown it to the crew, then obviously the camera would normally first take the place of the other character. I don't know why. Often used to be that way round. So it would be me staring down a a black hole trying to remember David's face the weird wow. thing is, is stuff like when you've got to snog them and uh, obviously it's it's a camera so they used to put lips 
lips what? on the bottom of it what? made out of foam <laughs> what? that I actually would have to put my mouth on. Because otherwise it looks wrong. If you get it even an inch yeah. or even actually a centimetre, well, it just looks mad. It looks like you're, <laughs> you're kissing the forehead of the person or the ear. So for it to look... This is absolutely sensational. I didn't know this. Yeah, because there's so much internal monologue often when sexual stuff is happening. Um, they often need quite a lot of footage of the kiss so that they can be on you with your eyes closed or him with his eyes closed and have his internal monologue going on. So, yeah. So actually would have to do it maybe for eight to ten seconds or longer while David would read out these lines to make sure we'd got enough coverage. Is there anything weirder you've done than that <laughs> and been paid for? Hi, Mark. Nice to see you. Dobby, likewise. There's meant to be a bunch of USB sticks here, but I can't reach. Could you...? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you'll, you'll have to move. Yeah, I should move, but I might not move. She's shifting her bum against my area. Are you, are you sure you, you don't want to get out of the way? I'm all right. Um, yeah, no, that is no. It is probably the weirdest thing I've done. That, the, yeah, I can't imagine and it, it somehow. No, well, I mean, I couldn't before, and at the audition it was odd because you're doing it down the lens, and so I had to learn the lines. I always try and learn lines anyway at auditions, but it was it's a, such a massive movement to look down at a script from looking straight mm. down a lens. So I was really oh God, you're, you're filling the screen to, as well. You can't. I imagine you're acting, and I suppose when you're looking into someone's eyes as an actor, you can get a response. It can cue and it you again. It changes what you do. Yeah, it's literally the opposite to Damned, which is a show that I do for Channel Four now about yeah. children's services and social Will services. Smith and, yeah. yeah, Will Smith writes it with um, Joe Brandon Moore, Wedder Banks. It's Kevin Elton and Alan Davison, Joe Brandon. Quite a good cast. Yeah, Not yeah, bad. quite quite good, quite isn't good. it? Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's literally the opposite to Peep Show there because we will do so much improvisation that it can change every single time and, you know, you feel able to say, let's do that bit again. I'm sort of, um, whereas Peep Show was very technical. We didn't ever do anything that, that wasn't in the script and and more than that, it was a technical exercise doing it. But once you got your head around it, it was very satisfying because you had to sort of use slightly different skills, I think, mm. to to feel satisfied with what you'd done. Yeah. Like um, you, you've got to read your performance and read your day differently. Yeah, you felt you understood when it worked in a different way from from normal, but it just took a little bit of time to. And then you'd get guest actors in who would just be really thrown by the fact they had to do it, you know. And then, but it's quite quite quick. It was very relaxed. It was lots of fun. So I think that helps, doesn't it? Cause people. I remember saying to Robert Webb we were right when we were writing on Mitchell and Webb, and we wanted to do. We really loved doing as they did, uh, Digby Chicken Caesar, his sort of crazy drunk Sherlock Holmes, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Dick Barton thing, uh, and then just writing uh, another sketch for it. And Rob going, "Please, can we not do any more of these?" And I went, "Why are they great?" And he went, "Because the opening shot is a rigged camera." going straight into my face while I'm running along and it's really heavy and it reminds me of Peep Show and if we can do some sketches where I've not got a camera anchored onto my head and I suddenly realised, oh God, I never thought as a writer what it was like to perform these sketches and it was just reminding me, he said, when I'm doing the, the sketch show, I'd really like to be interacting with other actors and not have loads of camera equipment right sure, in my face. Sure, sure. But I mean, having it attached to you is a different thing. I think with the pilot of Peep Show, they did have the cameras attached to their wow. heads. But then I think it was just sort of unworkable because... 
God, if someone attached a camera, to, I don't know the first thing about filming something. I just <laughs> it would just be shots of the ceiling and stuff with someone talking. So I think they they just abandoned that quite quickly. We cannot and so trust we, the yeah, cast. No, yeah. Um, so it's a cameraman called Nick Martin who did Peep Show, whose yeah. foam lips you were always yes. kissing. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Izzy, tell us what you brought on to this podcast to have a look at. I have brought Love Nina by Nina now. There's a lot of discussion about how to pronounce her surname. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Well, my, Actually, the, my local we, bookshop... Just a minute, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but can we do your surname first? Because I hear you introduced as Izzy Sooty quite a lot, and I'm convinced it's Sutty, but then you've got a Matlock accent and I haven't. So which of the two would it be? Well, I... Like, I always say to people, it's however you'd say Chip Butty. So right, if you'd right. say Sutty... So I'd say then, Sutty. I mean, my dad was Scottish. It's Scottish. My dad was is Scottish. It? And he used to say... Well, he used to say the Scottish accent, which I think is like Sutty. Sutty. Yeah, really short. But, yeah, Sutty. I don't really mind. But I think what people sometimes do is just copy my accents. Yeah. And now, welcome to the stage, Izzy Sutty. <laughs> sounds really odd. <laughs> Not that I do that many gigs which are compared by Victorian gentlemen. <laughs> I interrupted you at the writer's surname. At the writer's surname, yeah. Well, I, I'm sure she must have this discussion about her surname, mustn't she? Um, so it's Love Nina by... By So my local bookshop, the guy who owns that, Jonathan, he calls her Stevie. Because uh, she comes there sometimes to do readings and stuff. So he's the only person who's talked to me about the pronunciation and said that it's Stevie. No, like I don't Stib know. It looks me. like Stib could Stibby. be Stibby. I mean, there's actually quite a lot of... Nina Stibby. Stib. S-T-I-B-B-E. Could it be German? Stibber? Oh. So basically, if you are anyway. going to read this book, you might not get past the author's name. You might just stumble at that point. But it's Just probably... look up Love. Just get Love Nina. Love Nina. Love We're... Nina, yeah. And it's it's a book uh, published in about 2012, 13? Yeah, I a few think years so. ago. And it was, a, it was a big seller, actually. I remember there being yeah, fuss about it. it. It was a big hit. Uh, it was it... a really big hit, wasn't it? I came to it quite late. I didn't... Well, I read it about a year ago, I think. Um, yeah, 2013 it was published. But it's yeah. not set in 2013. It's it's probably one of the hardest books to persuade someone to read. If you well, yeah, it. because if you yes, if you I was reading the, the little um, quotes from various publications at the front, all of which are amazing, unsurprisingly, because it's a, an absolutely fantastic book. But I agree when you the one from the Daily Telegraph says the hilarious confessions of a North London nanny, and I think that's a really bad description of what it is. Yeah, because yeah. it sounds as soon as you hear North London nanny, I think of someone who shops in like hobs and you know <laughs> but it's not about that it's about her being an outsider isn't it yeah, yeah. um so it's in fact in a way it's the opposite of, yeah. of a north london nanny it's a spy inside sort of camden literary bohemia from about 1982 to 87 it's five years of of letters home to her sister as if she's been posted abroad to observe the natives yeah and it's um, because their letters, it's so intimate, it's almost better than it being a diary because she wants to make her sister laugh. Yeah. So she takes care over the descriptions of people. I mean, I could talk for a long time about why I think it's so good, really. But I, I think I a think lot of it's... I think you come to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's odd. I thought I was just saying to talk about foam funny. lips. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> How lucky. <laughs> the detail of it is what makes it so funny and warm for me. I think you can kind of get away with saying quite personal things about people if you do it with love. Mm. In, 
in much more of a an interesting way than if you do it scathingly. And I think I always prefer that kind of warm, odd, sort of skewed humour to like satire or yeah. like quite cruel humour. It's hard to work out. I mean, I, I read this with fascination because oddly it comes, she's living in, in North London. She's, she's being a nanny for the editor of the London Review of Books. Is it LRB? Yeah. yeah. The LRB. Editor. Uh, and they live opposite Alan Bennett and Alan Bennett pops around all the time with rice pudding and things. And it's got that sort of slightly <laughs> Stella Street feel that Jonathan, um, yes. they borrow a saw off Jonathan Miller. Yes. Uh, it's got, They're so called got, mucking about in Ursula Vaughan Williams' skit. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got those lovely levels of going, okay, well, I've got a way in because I know these people, but you're seeing them unguarded. It's a bit like being a spy. You're, you're twitching the curtains as if you're a neighbour watching them. And she's in there as your representative but she's got a tone of voice and a way of writing that immediately reminds you of Victoria Wood yes. weirdly reminds you of Alan Bennett and Sue Townsend Sue I Townsend yeah. I said Adrian yep. Mole is published she even refers to it. it it's published while she's writing these letters home and what I find fascinating about this book as a piece of style a piece of comic writing and it is a skyscrapingly good piece of comic writing is it's all about detail and it's all about uh, specificity getting the brand names right and things. And she pretends to be like a faux, naive observer. But you think, hang on, you're keeping me entertained. You're entertaining your sister. You're entertaining me. You, I think, like, you pretend to not have heard of Alan Bennett, but you like this kind of comedy. It reminds me of of Patricia Routledge's Kitty monologues from Victoria Wood has seen on TV. It's a nosy (laughs) neighbour. But I think you've read these books. There's a bit where she, she becomes a student and she writes a creative writing essay in is it a writing an autobiography paper and she gets an A plus for it and you go right you've been pretending you don't know about stuff but you're an A plus student in a creative writing course for autobiography you are expert at this and part of your expertise is pretending you don't know what you're doing absolutely and harnessing her natural kind of naivety it's like she's got a natural She'll, she's an, she's obviously an open person like that bit with the skip mm. she's looking after the two kids Sam and Will a lot of the time isn't she and she sort of openly admits she doesn't really know that much about looking after them and she's supposed to clean the house and she doesn't and they get a cleaner and <laughs> the relationship between her and the mum Mary Kay is, is brilliant the way she paints Mary Kay's character is fantastic and they get it so she just puts one of the kids in the skip because he wants to go in that's what I love about it he wants to go in so she just picks him up and puts him into the skip then she can't get him out and so she's, she's a yes person she's 20 yeah. the strange thing it never occurred to me that when you I, I've never employed a nanny but suddenly thinking I was worried about having kids thinking I'm a bit irresponsible I wait so I'm more grown up to have kids and then the first thing lots of people do when they have kids is give them to someone who is much younger than them who doesn't know what they're doing I know, I know. because actually the truth of it is kids are fairly resilient yeah, and, and no one them, knows what they're doing it's fine yeah. yes yeah yeah <laughs> and Sam's laugh was echoing around inside the skip Sam there's a thing in here me what is it Sam I don't know him saying that made me think I'd better get him out but it was difficult because when I tried to lift him out he seemed about 10 times heavier than when I lifted him in and it was deep plus we were laughing a lot and that weakens you as you know from the near drowning at St Margaret's Will was helpful and offered to get into the skip himself and help from the inside, but I wanted at least one of them not in the skip. I had to do supply teaching when I was um, when I first graduated. I wouldn't have any work. It was just beyond horrendous. I've got such respect for teachers. <laughs> None of us had any training. We just were with an agency that had found a loophole in the law that if you had um, 
a degree in performing, you could do supply teaching. We didn't it's know anything acting, about right? the it's curriculum. Just acting. They're just a very, very hostile audience. Yeah, exactly. That was the way I used to. Tr- I used to think, oh, I'll try out different accents. I used to try and <laughs> speak in RP, and they go, "You're Australian." I mean, it, I mean, that was a thin end of the, of the wedge. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had honestly, I, it was so bad that one day I threw up into a bin on the way there with stress. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was awful. But it reminds me a bit of how out of her depth she is sometimes. Um, I remember being in a seminar with my with my group of kids you don't you go to a school you've never been there before you don't know you don't know the system you don't know where their mm. assembly hall is you don't so you have to trust kids to tell you the truth and one of them said um miss i need to blow my nose and i just didn't know what to do i was like 22 and the teacher was taking the assembly so i said oh um just blow it on your sleeve and they just what looked at me these wide eyes like i'm allowed to blow on my sleeve and they started just wiping snot on their sleeve like a really big way like a and then it went down the line everyone started doing and I got told off and so there's a kind <laughs> of health and safety nightmare <laughs> just these streaks of snot on all that oh it was grim it was just and it and bits of part of the reason I think it works is because she makes herself so vulnerable like it's yeah. like she can gently chide the other people in it but she is also incredibly open to criticism and, and takes the piss out of herself. She's and, a big character. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a narrator character that very like Sue Townsend, very like Adrian Mole, that she is acting... She's got a lovely... It's always funny to act more grown-up than you are. Yeah. And a nanny is someone who's sort of by their... For, for a job, acting more responsible than they are. They're usually young people looking for looking for uh, for work. Uh, but someone who hasn't had kids themselves, who is... She's a, Someone dressed up as a mum. Yeah, it and is. And she it's really plays that. Yeah. And so you're just watching it through her eyes and she's revealing her own character through her writing, which is very clever. And all the way through it, you're, she's doing something. It falls into the same category. If you enjoy Bridget Jones' Diary, mm. you'll get loads from this. If you enjoyed Adrian Mole, you'll get loads from this. If yeah. you enjoyed uh, Diary of a Nobody, uh, George and Whedon Grossmith, which is, again is North London comedy of manners through a diary or yeah. letters. What I loved about it, and what it's got in common with those, is is comedy works well over short sprints. You don't want to, want to watch a two-hour comedy movie. You want things to be short and snappy, like one-liners and scenes and things that, that move fast. Because it's in short letters, it moves really fast. Yeah. Mm. And because she's moving fast, she's taking little telling snapshots. And then you as a reader look through those snapshots to the world beyond and guess what else is going on. Yeah. Just by definition, they're letters. It's one side of a phone conversation you're yeah. eavesdropping on. So you've got this missing detail, which you just fill up with your imagination. So you do some of the work yourself. And as anyone who writes or makes comedy knows, a joke or a punchline that the audience gets along with you is the warmest punchline. And yeah. she leaves so many gaps for you to put in your own life, your own imaginings. What's her sister like? Little references to things which have got huge. There's yawning chasms for you to make your own jokes. I know it's lovely, and she'll t- and she's left in things to Vic is the sister, isn't she? She's yeah. left in things like th- little things to Vic, like oh, if I were you, I'd put tomatoes into the tagliatelle or something. <laughs> that you just think, what's th- what's Vic asked her, but we never know, you know, that's, or even something quite a bit nice more. Having the missing voice, isn't it? There was yeah. some, there was one that jumped out at me when she when she started a letter by going okay look I know who Jonathan Miller is he's not an opera singer yes. <laughs> this is a conversation of a row. and the lovely thing is this is before Google and yeah. this is before and I imagine they probably phoned each other a little bit on landlines yeah. but it's you know it's expensive you know, it, this, is, this is the era before you were even as someone reminded me yesterday putting nail varnish onto phone cards so you could stay in touch with people yes. <laughs> 
you know. forget you couldn't keep in touch. I know. And I think it's so lovely that she has to, and as, as you say, I think she does know more than, than she lets on, but I, she still can't Google Jonathan yeah. Miller like we can mm, now. Yes. Can you imagine not not being able to Google someone? I mean, I hark, I, I, I wish it was still like that, really. I think a lot of... <laughs> Beautiful ignorance. There could be a lot of good... I could have written a book like this if... No, <laughs> no I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. Dear Vic, I can't pass on Mr Blunt's letter to Jonathan Miller just at the moment. I think I'm in his bad books. It's partly that I asked him if he was an opera singer and everyone laughed because he isn't one and although being an opera singer is fine, apparently it's ridiculous if someone thinks you are but you aren't. Can't decide if this is insulting to opera singers or to anyone who isn't one. Oh, you talk about sort of the difference between then and now. One of the things that struck me reading this is it's got uh, it's got characters in it and she is managing her own persona in her letters and and the personas of the people around her. It's a bit like reading someone's Facebook feed now where you go, well, that is you, it sort of isn't you. Here's yes. the choice of which snapshots. She yeah. carries a camera around for a bit of it and is doing a lovely thing which was fashionable at the time, which is trying to take photos of people unaware by holding yes. the camera at your hip. And then you'd go, I tried this once, and you go down to Boots because you couldn't get the cameras, ba- the photos back straight away and you get them developed and they're all pictures of the Hoover. You haven't got anyone's heads in. But she's got that sort of snapshot war reporter trying to get candid little snapshots of people, but also she's managing them and she's managing a feed as it were of her life which she then distorts and does caricatures in that the people in it i was lovely to read about alan bennett's reaction to it being depicted in this is him going, he went that's not me and he went no someone's made a character out of you in a way oddly that alan bennett made a character out of himself in his own diaries and he doesn't like someone else doing it to him no and he was saying i don't cook mandarin salad and stuff wasn't he because there's a bit about him he brings round i love the relationship with mandarin salad yes that's right yeah Um, she's just made coleslaw yes (laughs) he there's a lot about food isn't there it's beautiful there's recipes in there and banana custard yeah she she makes all this stuff it's got a real nigel slatery sort of nostalgia about nursery food because she's again she's barely a child so when she makes things she makes finder's crispy pancakes and pasta bake and all the things you could make at college Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mary Kay is such an acerbic, brilliant, intelligent, witty, caring, complex woman, I think. Well, the glimpses you get of her, there's a brilliant thing where she just lists her shopping list, Mary's shopping list. Yes. And there's a lovely line in it where she's like, oh, God, I wish I'd... I I won't do it as well. Again, you can't misquote this book. No, I know. I know. There's a thing where she said, I think she's shopping based on what she's seen other people buy and is just copying them. And you think that aspirational thing where you won't just go and buy bean, baked beans and burgers. You'll buy balsamic vinegar yeah. or something that you at the time. in the cupboard for five years. And she's yeah. just copying other North London yeah. mums because yeah. she's as incompetent as Nina is. Do you know what? I do think it's different from Facebook, actually, because, um, because the letters are too Vic. And she, right. like, if I think, I don't write letters that much anymore, sadly. I think a letter is different from an email. Mm. Um, but when I think of, like, letters that I used to write to old boyfriends and stuff, they were so targeted to to them. Yeah. And if, you, if you're if you funny, um, which I am, I think, God, that's so hard to say. <laughs> we, this is, a, it, it, this is a support group. <laughs> So, why is that so, so you hard think to you're say? funny, do you? <laughs> Which I am. Um. John Fenimore came on. It took him so long, and he's one to admit he was a comedy writer. I've earned a living from it. You yes. don't want to be a too assertive about how funny you are, because that's a crime. I know, and then it's so bloody transient, isn't it? This like, I've seen her on Dave's one night stand. And let me show you, show he's not. Um, anyway, um, if you're funny, which I am and was then in the 90s, when I used to write, like if I think of my boyfriend Tom, uh, when I was uh, like, you know, in my early 20s, we used to try and make each other laugh so much. I, uh, um, you know, our relationship was just really based around sort of larking around and stuff. And that I think letters are very different from a Facebook feed. I think they're much better than one because I think somehow the more people you think you're talking to, the more introspective and kind of diluted it becomes in a strange way because it's it's got to be about you like if I think mm. on the way here I was going to tweet this is the kind of weather where you see people in both ski jackets and Bermuda shorts uh, that isn't one of my best ones I didn't tweet it in the end actually um, but uh, I was thinking I'm not gonna I'm not, I'm not I know that isn't funny enough I'm, what am I really saying someone's probably said it better blah 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 whereas actually in a letter you wouldn't write something like that 
you'd yeah. perhaps relate it to the person you're writing to or you'd write more of a detail about yourself like I was going to wear that horrible ski jacket that mum got me but instead I've worn this yeah. so I sort of think you're not it, revealing yourself when you've got a big audience you're sometimes not. you're, you're, you're revealing thinking, a caricature of yourself that yeah, is dishonest that is dishonest because you're thinking about all the different reactions right? and yeah. that's why it takes mm. so long I think to find your kind of voice in stand-up because I think at first you sort of do that I think you do that general kind of let's try and cover all bases tweet the, hey who's the, from earth yeah Anyone exactly yeah yeah exactly What's the in cats and dogs we've seen them it's that yeah or the th- yeah the thing where you think well at least some people will recognize this and some people might find it a bit funny so that's like this this is the kind of weather for story you see ski suits in moon shorts it, 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 it is not a great tweet at all but there'll be some people who go yeah that's it right so when you start stand up that's the kind of thing you do because you're so scared and you're so desperate for some reaction that you think if I just do more of a general thing and then over the years slowly 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 you become more daring with what you do and it becomes more about a streamlined thing that you think there's a tribalism in comedy that's quite good sometimes in saying that if you're trying to reach everybody you won't ever go specific enough to really really get a really deep reaction what you're saying to anyone is that hey i'm like this are you like this and sometimes if you're a king of the really general joker michael mcintyre or peter k you can get a huge stadium agreeing mums are like this and we all share that value of what our mums are like or you can be a niche comedian and say, I'm talking to my people, we think this. And actually that reaction, that smaller audience, weirdly, she is, Nina in this, is talking about a very small subset of literary London. She's not talking to an audience who won't get what she's talking no, about. No, absolutely. And I often think the more specific you are, the better it works. Like, you could read this and be from Russia and not have ever been to North London and not, you know, but you would recognise the types of people in your community. You would, I I think sometimes there's a fear, isn't it, of of going specific because you think, oh, but exactly. And I I think it's it's such a simple thing when you learn it, isn't it? There's a brilliant line I wrote down, which is, she says, I changed, I changed the subject to Mary Hope's disappointment with her new Zanussi, brackets, temperamental on the spin. What's brilliant (laughs) about that is that Zanussi is the right brand Let's not even get to the fact that rhythmically that is falling like Shakespeare. It's just got rhythm. But I think it must be very instinctive with her. Like it, I feel like this book is such a good balance between sh- just pure feral comedy talent and a kind yeah. of technical. She's got, as you say, she's got an awareness that she's funny, and that makes it even more sharp. It's all really funny, and a lot of it is really informative about the characters. Our usual place is at the table for supper. Will at 11, Sam at 12, MK at 1, Alan Bennett at 9 and me at 3. Rectangle clock face. AB tries to go in Will's place sometimes because he likes to be in the middle. There's never a bit that you feel, oh, she probably thought, oh, I'll keep that in its sort of shoe hunt in a bit. It's, it's so economical. Well, she, they, were in, they were in a shoebox. They, they were in Vic's shoebox. This wasn't meant for public consumption. It was meant for one person's consumption. So you're observing someone whose stand-up routine has been honed for... I'm an audience member of, yeah. audience of one. She's had nothing knocked off her yes. to please more than that specific audience. So as a reader, you are so flattered that there's nothing been... She's not patronising you. She's not talking down to you. She's not taking any references out, worried you won't get them. And it's a, just a delight to be in the presence of someone who's performing a 
top rank bit of comic writing for an audience of one. Yeah, that's true. And if you tried to write it, when I, the first time I read Adrian Mole, I thought it was a real diary. I was young. Oh, I, was I was probably about like 13, 12 or 13. Yeah, I found it very, very funny. And I thought that it was by a guy called Adrian Mole. I just didn't read the cover properly. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, that, you know, Sue Townsend did an amazing thing with Adrian Mole because I think it's very hard. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment. And when I, I thought, God, I'd love to write something a bit like a diary or a bit like letters, but I just couldn't get an idea to gel. And I think it's because I'd be coming at it from the point of view of this is going to be a book, but in the form of diaries or in the form of letter. I think it has to be. I used to read out letters from my mum in my stand up. They were just a bit, a little bit like this, really, like full of detail about local people and the kind of mundanity of, of Matlock life. And they and they work really well. And then as soon as she knew I was reading them out, she'd go, oh, I'll write you a letter. Oh, Something's no. happened. I won't tell you. I'll write it into a letter. And they were, they were still good because I think my mum is, is very funny and she also has a, a, a good way of writing. But they were never, ever as funny as they were when they were just to me. <laughs> and she didn't know I was going to read them out. Exactly. You you're not kind of preempting. You're not thinking, oh, you know, are people in Leicester on a, on a Thursday night at an art centre going to laugh at this? <laughs> Do you want me to read? Yeah, um, no, we should have some me, bits. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? There's a good bit here actually with Nunny. Do you know what? I think she ended up, she stayed with Nunny. Yeah, yeah think, you got married. Yeah, it's so yes. lovely, isn't it? I sort of love the fact she didn't put that in the book as well. Yeah, I found that out by looking up. Yeah, me too. Biography, but yeah. yeah, so this is a bit where Sam is one of the sons that she looked after. And uh, Nunny is a local neighbour, really, who um, it's obvious they, I think they sort of fancy each other at this point, but, but nothing's happened. Sam and I went to 57, saw a basket of clean washing all neatly folded with a pair of Nunny's boxer shorts on top, brackets, stripey, comma, ironed, close brackets. <laughs> ironed. Um, I threw them at Sam. Sam threw them back and they ended up out of the window, brackets second floor. They were meant to drop down onto Nunny and Tom in the garden, but they caught on a tree branch. Then yesterday went to National Gallery with Nunny. He likes it there, brackets, the big scenes. After we'd looked at all the art, he tricked me into hanging off a high wall by the entrance steps and pulled my trousers down. <laughs> Loads of people around, me and Mickey Mouse pants. Me, how could you do that in a public place, Nunny? I took no pleasure in it, simply a taste of your own medicine. Me, I was vulnerable. Nunny, that's when to strike, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is dialogue that was never meant to be recorded. Exactly. And only shared with one person. And it's got all the rhythms of good sitcom dialogue, authentically the way people talk. And yeah. all the character comes out through it. And all the pacing, the way that it's very, very spare because it's a letter. Yeah. And I imagine would have been, she talks about using a typewriter and saying she gets all confused and yes. gets fed up typing the word Wordsworth in one of her essays. So I imagine these are written longhand. And when you write longhand... You You're don't. Right, we haven't short. got. Yeah, absolutely. This is lovely. But where she talks about the typewriter, it's a victim, doesn't she? She said the idea is that you learn where all the letters are, so you don't have to look down the whole time. But it's like such a. It's like yes, that's yeah, it's <laughs> that's lovely. But yeah, I still haven't done that. I type and write for a living, and I still do point and peck, and I've got one hand that only does one letter at a time. Yeah, well, that's. That's, that, that's that's fair enough. That's like playing you're the guitar. You're funny and you're funny. We're all funny. We're all we don't need We're to learn funny. how to type. Yeah. And um, this is a bit about um it's kind of a balance isn't it between her being a bit of a nosy neighbor in quite an honest way and then observing people in a kind of seemingly ad hoc way, I think. Yeah. But this is an example of when she's being quite 
obviously inquisitive about about um, some of the new neighbours. Some new people have moved into the Crescent and put lace curtains up at the windows, brackets, where there used to be Venetian blinds. A kind of half curtain. They have a talk of the Crescent. Everyone keeps saying, what about those curtains? Mary Hope says they're jardiniere, very popular in Portugal. She knows about fabrics, brackets, worldwide. But... <laughs> They're not curtains as such, more of a window dressing, more like underwear than curtains. Even Claire Tomalin, who usually wouldn't bother mentioning things like that, said, what bizarre curtains. Jez thinks they're very Mike Lee. <laughs> Love to know what that means. <laughs> um, Neve thinks they're outrageous. Will says they're poncy. Mary Kay says it's up to them what they have at the windows, but thinks they're a bit pointless. I hate them. Sam thinks we're all being horrible. There's often things like that, isn't there, with everyone's opinion and then a lovely thing at the end which kind of ties it all up. Um, A friend of ours, Chris Heath, said one of the great rules of comedy is end on a squeaker. When you go, go, bang, 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 bang. (laughs) <laughs> which yeah, I've never heard that's before good. and it's just she's got a natural sense of that she'll go bang bang lots of opinions and then one of the kids will come in with something which just goes horrible and yes go, yes that's pure comic structure that's got the rhythm of really well written prose and I think yeah because you're she's observing you're watching her observe and then you're observing her. This reminds me a lot of, there's a lovely uh, Twitter feed for and a book called Postcard from the Past. Oh yeah, I followed him, yeah. Uh, finding old postcards in shops and then posting a tiny detail from what's on the back of them. And through those antique postcards, pictures of holiday destinations from the, from the past, and then a the tiny bit of someone's life on the other side, there's a whole short story. It's all Hemingway's baby shoes all the time, but better and more funny. Yeah. Yeah, And there's loads of that in this, where you're glimpsing, with pure comic pace, a bigger world. And it's all authentic. Uh, she's talking about trying to write some autobiographical fiction with her friend from uh, from college. And there's a lovely line here, where she's, she's working out, some stories work and some stories don't when you retell them. She said, so it's the same old, it's how you communicate thing. You have to wonder why authors even bother trying to make up a good story, chasing whales or living in a hollowed out old tree, when just losing your gloves is good enough, if you tell it right. That is so true. It's the secret of everything. But that's why this book is so good. It has things like that in it, which are just, they're like childlike observations that have no... Mm. No purpose other than to be told to her sister. Just you get everything because they're letters. You she's, know. Doing, she's doing an alchemy with the banal that you start with something that's got nothing. And you go, well, if I tell you, she is someone who down the pub would know just how to tell an anecdote. Yes. You get that feeling. And you go, she has weighed all her experience and said, the weight's here. You take it off there. But everything's balanced. But for this audience of one who she's trying to entertain and she's really good at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's turning your life into art, but oddly it reminded me of stand-up and the process of stand-up. Yeah. And con- especially observational stand-up or what you do, which is storytelling stand-up, which isn't just gags or puns or anything. Yeah. What do you do when you've got an amazing anecdote? And I was thinking of the one you told, I saw you do live in stand-up about Roy the Penguin. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's such a good anecdote. You go, once I've got that anecdote and I've told it... Do I have any others? Yes, yes, yes. Well, well, I've sort of mined my history uh, and sort of me and Alice have both said it's it's really hard meeting someone that you're very happy with and having a child because you don't have any material anymore. Uh, The the Roy anecdote is that I was going out with a guy and it wasn't going that well. Um, It was always one of those relationships where I sort of liked him like 51% and he liked me 
49%. And I was always trying to get it to 50-50. So I'm thinking, if I lose four pounds, it'll go to 50-50. If I get a mobile phone... But it was an attempt to do something, to make a beautiful personal gift for him that would show him that I really cared for him and that was painstaking. I wanted him to know it had been painstaking. <laughs> anyway, his favourite animal was a, a, a penguin and we'd been to London Zoo and we'd seen this penguin called Roy who was a bit slower at walking than the others for some reason and he didn't get as much fish as the others and we sort of felt very sorry for him we watched him for a long time and I knew that penguins were his favourite animals so I thought I'm just going to make him a penguin but I absolutely hated doing things by halves Um, and that applied to absolutely every area of my life so I just thought right I'm going to make him a penguin I'm not going to make him like a a one foot penguin or a drawing of a penguin. I'm going to make him a five foot penguin that's wider than an average human. So, but I've never done anything like that. Like I did, I didn't even do, I did art GCSE, but it was ceramic. So I don't have any experience of working with chicken wire, which is what I ended up using to make Roy. So I just went it's to a like... It's medium. <laughs> yes, it is, yes. That GCSE chicken wire that <laughs> not many people take. Um, so I went to like this building merchants and said, look, I want to make this penguin. They're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so they sold me like this roll of chicken wire. So I just had no idea what to do. So I just folded it round. So it was like in a big tube, if that makes sense, kind of standing on its end. Um, roll, rolled round so it met at the top then became open and then I I went mad I sort of went mad with creativity I got more types of wire and I made shelves in Roy's stomach so because it had this open bit um, I hadn't planned any of it but I was like oh yeah I'll do this covered it all with papier mache made the head out of I got one of those light bulbs uh, the big ball light bulbs paper ones and I stuffed that with newspaper and um, so it was very um, tight. It was like very round and taut, I suppose. And I put um, papier-mâché on the top of the head. I made a beak. Um, the head was completely detachable because I made a groove on top of the, right. the kind of mug thing. So You've gone beyond any sane way of behaving. I know, This, this I is know. approaching Richard Dreyfus building that huge mountain in his front room in Close Encounters. Oh, yes, it's, a, yes. it's an expression of basically mental illness. No, exactly. <laughs> and the only thing that would have been worse is if we hadn't been going out and I fancied him. That, actually, yes, yeah. that would just <laughs> Hello, I mean, I I know you like penguins. This This is only the beginning. (laughs) Imagine how big a penguin we could have if we got married. (laughs) Get married in the penguin. I, uh, the wings were made out of felt as well. So the wings you could completely rotate. And they went, but he was wide. He was wider than, wider than the average human. He had these felt wings. He had this detachable head. You could put it at any angle. And it was really clear that it was like the more work I put into it, the more I stuck my head in the sand about the fact that the relationship was going to end. It was really odd. It was like I was completely fighting wow. what I knew was coming. So when I took it round, it was it was um, for Christmas. So I knocked on the door with Roy, <laughs> with my arm round Roy. I mean, he was nearly as tall as I was. And I took him on the bus <laughs> and the driver tried to charge for him in a kind of half-jokey way. And then all the people on the bus were like, don't, don't, you don't do that. She's made that for someone. You know, and then I sort of gathered around and asked me loads of questions like, well, you know, what is it? It's a, yeah, is, it, is it a panda? It was really unclear what it was. <laughs> oh, God. So I had to get it from my house in East Dulwich to Hearn Hill, which isn't a very long journey, really, about a 20-minute journey. Um, but yeah, I took it round. And then um, when he opened the door, I was sort of there and I said, this is Roy. 
and then I pretended that it talked and said, hello. And it, 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 let's take it upstairs. And we took it all the way. Did you make a hole in the voice? Oh, no, I well, know the voice was really, but the voice was like, you know, that there was like a spate of American films like around the time of Juno and Juno was good. But you know, those kind of films that were like sub, sub Junos where there would be like a girl who dressed as an eagle and oh, um, yeah, would be yeah, like, yeah. hello, hello and stuff. And I was like, oh no, am I like that? I That's what I'm, a manic yeah. picture dream girl <laughs> yeah, exactly. against my will. This <laughs> Penguin has taken me hostage and now I've got its voice. <laughs> exactly. It was like, yes. So, yeah, we took it upstairs and then he, he didn't use the shelves. Oh, and that became a really big deal. So Roy had quite a small bedroom. Roy stayed in the corner and just sort of watching over us with his head on one side. And we were doing a lot of crying then, you know, like at the end of... <laughs> so anyway, he didn't use the shelves. And um, it was a really, really big big problem for me because the shelves took a, one of the longest elements of it to make because I had to work out how to attach them to the inside of the stomach basically so what you're doing is you're trying to make what is a futile and pointless gesture somehow useful yeah and if someone says I don't want to use that then it's just a futile and pointless gesture exactly it's really exposed it's for underlined. what it is <laughs> it's lack of function it's like the penguin doesn't work <laughs> I know it's odd isn't it <laughs> but it's so big at this point I have to say Roy is in is in serious danger of being re-gifted isn't he yeah well so th- then so he didn't use the shelves he moved out not Roy um, my, <laughs> Roy had had you enough rowing and watching crying. Two, two people crying I can't watch you doing this sexless relationship anymore and you won't use my shelves I'm out of here <laughs> yeah Gonna, gonna go down the road to Brixton. It's an eight-year-old child who wants to use the shelf. So um, yeah, so my boyfriend moved out, and um, I went to his new flat, and Roy wasn't there. And I said, "What? Oh, no. Where's Roy?" And he said, "Oh yeah," as if he'd sort of. He said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Don't worry." I couldn't fit everything in the car. And obviously, Roy is very big. Even if you detach the head, he's still, <laughs> we couldn't fit him in the car. But I'm gonna go back and get him. But to keep him safe, I've put him up in the attic. And um, I used to go around and he still wouldn't be there and he still wouldn't be there and he still wouldn't be there. And then I wonder, I thought, he's never going to leave that attic. And then, and then we broke up. Oh, my God. I know. So as far as I know, he's still in the attic. You've made in a the chicken old wire wow. metaphor. Wow. I know. A huge chicken wire metaphor. Can you, can you tell us the exact address where Roy might be? <laughs> just yeah, just in, in case. case. <laughs> yeah. We can get this to go viral and get Roy out of the attic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those, yeah. Those Release Roy. Rescue Roy. There's documentaries we can send ourselves on Netflix about the like searching for Sugarman. Yeah. We're going to find the lost penguin. Well, I don't it. reckon he's there anymore. But I love the idea that someone found him and... Yeah, maybe someone's got him. If anyone knows anyone with a papier-mâché penguin. A story like that, the brilliant thing about it, you couldn't make it up because the detail would be wrong and there's an authenticity to it that is just brilliant. You can obviously tell it differently and you can do those, those turns with it. And that is the craft that's in Love, Nina, is taking everyday experiences and turning them into something. And that is basically what you do if you are a stand-up. No, I think you can make this stuff up. That's the point. You can write anything like this into a fiction. The great thing is about the Penguin story and the great thing about this book is that because it isn't made up, it's got that extra weight to it, hasn't it? Yeah, and I feel, because it's true, that I can tell it. I've got the right to tell it. And I've got the right to go into detail of how sad I was and Mm. how it was a really sad and horrible time and it's like the only good thing that came out of that period and I think if I'd written it 
it wouldn't be the same because it would I wouldn't have lived through it. Um, but then I think there's a certain skill to writing things that are completely made up, that sound real. And I think the key is, for me at least, um, God, this is the most middle class thing I've ever said, but have you ever made kefir the drink? No. <laughs> no. Right, OK. Well, with kefir... Where's this going? Well... You um, start with a load of chicken wine. I made, yeah, I made a kefir penguin. <laughs> uh, my mum has made it a few times and she was like, oh, it's very easy. You just get these seeds from eBay. And, and, and then I spoke to her about wheat later and she said, oh, it's awful. I've abandoned it. They were all in the cupboard and they've got <laughs> too warm. Anyway, um, I think the way I understand it is you get a piece of muslin and you only have to have like a small amount of these kefir seeds or whatever with the good bacteria in them and you pour milk through the muslin and then it becomes kefir if you leave it. That's a sort of very simple explanation of it. But like the action of yeast. It's, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, a, it's a reactive thing. It's yeah. an agent. So you only need, as far as I understand it, quite a small bit of kefir in order to make loads of new kefir. Yeah, right. And I think the key for me, when I've had to do things like, say, with my radio series, which are based in truth... And the characters are based in real characters. And some of the time they are real people, but I might have changed their names. And then other times I might have had to change a few other elements of them. Because I think when you're writing about real people, you have a responsibility not to upset them. And that's because I am uh, the biggest people pleaser you could ever meet. <laughs> I think you need a, a seed, sometimes a kernel of, of complete pure truth. And that somehow opens the door to it's like a tree that grows branches so then you get all these things which feel true but have but are actually perhaps um a slightly twisted truth or perhaps it's something that one of your mates has done but you sort of steal it across to give to this character or and i think for me the key has to be that you have a truth or two that are quite fundamental things like even something simple like my friend carries a phone charger with her at all times. She's so scared of her phone running out of battery. And I think that's a really interesting quality because it is yeah. that idea that you can't live without your phone. I think something <laughs> that's quite idiosyncratic to that person. And then actually then it's like the whole thing suddenly takes shape. And You can go anywhere with that story as long as that initial little bit of yeast was yeah. real, it'll react with the fictions you've got and yeah. give some flavour and depth. Yeah. That's a really interesting idea. I've never thought of that. that well, I think... Emotional could... truth or truth in a detail like that. Yeah, I think it has to be as as, as, as tiny a detail as possible. Because I think what happens is when you've been, like you have, writing comedy for a while... And like I have as well, I think at first you've got all these stories and it's like you've got them all at your fingertips. And, you know, I, when I was on stage, I ironically, you're not as good at performing at the beginning. So you can't make the most of <laughs> the stuff yeah. and then you use it up on your first Edinburgh show. Mm. And then 10 years later, you go, fuck, I wish I'd. But of course, that's not the way it works, you know. Um, and bands sometimes do that, don't they? They do these you know, one or two brilliant albums and then they have an interesting period where they're more experimental or whatever. I think it's because you, A, I think you kind of run out of energy a bit and you go, oh, I think I'll learn how to cook Thai chicken curry instead of writing a song for seven hours. But also, <laughs> um, but also I think um, you have to move to a different creative space, I suppose, without sounding too wanky. Like you haven't got all those stories at your fingertips and you haven't. So I think you have to think more creatively about how you write and I think you how you, you mine for you're looking for another seam of, of, of gold yeah because you've you, like, go deeper, maybe, like yeah, yeah yeah exactly you, go but you might deeper not need or, as much gold 
No, because you can hammer you, it into Yeah, you're doorway. hopefully more skilled as well. Yeah. At, um, and I think you can, you become quicker, don't you, at going, oh, that needs to move there. And that, I mean, at yeah. the beginning, you're just kind of like. <laughs> you, realize you always need that seed of reality. Even the silliest things we've done. We've done projects which have just been absolute writing for hire and stuff. And the best material, the stuff you do fastest that, again, it does feel like a, a reactive process in, in cooking or with yeast or something. That you need little bits of truth in there, and suddenly they 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 replicate, and and you're writing faster than you would yeah. do because you're not having to reach for made up stuff. Yeah, it's all coming naturally. We did, I think we we did some writing for um, Mrs. Brown for Brendan. Oh yeah, I remember you doing that. Yeah, and just I was just a bit of writing to help out. But weirdly, we found that putting in bits of our real mums into Brendan's mix. There were jokes you could get. Yeah. And that was like that was way out of our comfort zone. That's not a key we normally write in. And it was great to find that our actual stories about motherhood and our mums and things went in there very autobiographically. And with the Ladybird books, and we do those, when we do a subject, we interview, take people out for drinks or dinner and say, tell us everything about how you feel as a mum or a dad or a sports fan. And the number of those anecdotes that have gone into Ladybird books, almost undiluted, but just exactly like Nina talks about, just told well and then people go oh that's that's that feels really authentic and yeah this is, these are disposable jokes but, but, but it's come from do you like doing like do you feel like when you go and do say mrs brown's boys or something i don't think i'd be great at going to do that because i wouldn't be confident oh, at God, my we hated like, the first couple of weeks of it i couldn't reach that voice at all it was it was completely alien but do you do you feel like when you come back and do like if you're away kind of helping with something as you say like if you get called into something and you, and they say quick we've got two is that what sometimes happens they're like yeah. quick we've got two weeks and can you um, yeah. yeah when you come back to your own stuff do you think it helps to have done that other completely different style yes. of comedy writing where totally. it's been you're in someone else's world and you've got mm. to it's, yeah. just, it's just doing uh, weightlifting it's just it's, it's it makes you fitter your muscles get better and sometimes it's nice for it not to be your key we, we've done loads of work where we come back and gone this is something we can't do we, we've done light ent before like writing topical monologues for Paul O'Grady or whatever and I come back from that and so do you just going we cannot do this there are people who can write a BAFTA award speech and put zinger after zinger in it that's not us. It's no quite, good at it. But yeah. I come back going, no one involved in the production goes, you're fired, you're terrible at this. They've enjoyed, we've had fun doing it. But you come back and go, wow. But your muscles are a bit more limber yeah. because you're working a muscle. You don't, you don't work very much. We did one yeah. day on Have I Got News For You? And I think we got two gags into the script. Well, that terrible. It, That's yeah. probably good, I would think. <laughs> well, that was also, we, we come straight over from doing Wipe with Charlie Brooker. So we thought, hey, we are completely match fit for topical gags. And we were there and we were no use at all. But it's such a different world, isn't it? it and is, also yeah. with, with Charlie Brooker's stuff, he's got such... Um, a specific voice, hasn't he? Yeah. But if you're writing for him, it's so different from one of those more general well, panel shows, I even if you know the host. Takes, and you're, I yeah. always describe it as shelves. And one of the first jobs when we hired him for things, you need a little bit of time to rearrange. Like like the shelves within a penguin. There are, there are shelves that you've got. And, and you, it's like being in a bookshop or something. And the, the books you need at the beginning are very much on the top of the shelf. The voice how, I don't know, how the characters talk or whatever when you're on someone else's show or on someone else's book or someone else's project. They're on a high shelf and your job for the first couple of weeks is to move all that stuff down to a shelf where you don't have to get a ladder out each time to reach for it and it's just within easy reach. Yeah. And Charlie, we found from the very beginning, was within easy reach. We've, we've got similar childhoods, similar interests. We both worked on the same sort of magazines and things like that. We knew each other from years back. So weirdly, when we came to write for Charlie, we can write fairly effortlessly in his voice because it's very similar to our voice. Yeah. But when we're writing for someone who's 
brought with helping out with a sketch show or a or a sitcom where someone's talking very easily in their authentic voice and you're doing an impression of them god for the first couple of weeks everything you need is on a very high shelf yeah if i had to write an episode of peep show i'd just make it to like super hands would just be constantly like taking his clothes off and covering <laughs> himself with like jam or something it'd just be like no this isn't Again, right you know no authenticity <laughs> yeah exactly but i think there's someone said if you knew Sam and Jesse back in the day, you'd know that, that those two voices, the, the one who was slightly more uptight, and those characters are within them and they're writing. They've reached down to themselves. They haven't, even though it looks like they've written those characters for David and Rob, they're kind of avatars for the two writers. Yeah. So when they just talk to each other and they write it down, sometimes, do you ever do this when you're writing that the quickest way of writing something is to get out a dictaphone and just talk? We do it very rarely, but just talk. We do it with Kunk. Uh, when we're writing Philomena Cunt, we just talk in her voice, and I can I can just do yards of that. Right? Yeah. No, I, I don't. It, I probably should do If I wrote do that. it down, it would take ages. Yeah. But we did a couple. We did a piece. I think it was a press release for the new book, and you just said phone on the table. Right, be Philomena, and I wrote the press release literally from head to the dictaphone, typed it up, and sent it to them. And not as not a performer, that's not how I think. But weirdly, the character was inside me. That's the, great. The voice was on a very low shelf. I didn't realise, by the way, how weird it was. We were, we were, we were writing some, uh, we were writing some something for Kunk a while ago, and there was someone who came and borrowed the third desk in the office, who was sitting there looking a bit disturbed at one point, and, and I wondered what was going on. And he went, "I didn't realise that you two sat here and did the voice." I mean, no, you're right. We do, All don't day. we? We do, just we didn't know. That must, but that's how instinctive it is. What that's how it, it comes out. What does it sound like through the wall? Because they're not good Bolton accents. No. <laughs> There's a plastic tablecloth, which Sam hides food under, and a great clunking bread bin. Wooden shutters at the window. You have to shut them or people walking past can look in. I don't always remember to, and people do, look in. If that happens, we always look out at them. And it's strange. It's a whole world of people and names and things, so it's a little slice of the times, which is really nice. And it does feel... I'm not sure how much it's helped or hindered by the fact that it's set at exactly the same time as Adrian Mole. So it's full of Trevor Brooking and people on the TV. But I think think it helps because I associate it with that golden age of Victoria Wood uh, and and Sue Townsend. The, The references are familiar. And I think that world helps. But my God, it's just... That, tr- that this exists is a miracle. I know, and I, but I think it's really good that she's written other books because I think it would be tempting for some people to go, you know, I can't better this. It's like yeah. it's, but actually, if you are a um, a comedy writer, then you just carry on, don't you? And you want to work yeah. on new stuff the whole time. And we know how soon something feels stale is quite alarming, isn't it? Like yeah, I think well. you can. You, if I look back at the actual one, which is only my book, which was only published a few years ago, I can't remember bits of it. I read bits and I'm like, oh God, that's not very good. Like, I, I sort of, you know, I'm proud of it, but it's um, it's um, frightening how quickly you feel distanced from it. And I think that must be an innate thing to keep you yeah. moving forwards. A friend handed me his newborn child about a year ago and I sat with it on my lap and thought, oh, still got it because the child was smiling. And I idly, when I was chatting to him with a beer in one hand, I handed the child some crisps from a bowl on the table because I was having crisps and I thought babies ate crisps because I'd forgotten eight years into having a child that 
I didn't feed my son crisps <laughs> when, he, when was he was born. Five days old, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. I should have done. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that's where it's all oh, going wrong in society. Soft, yeah. Back in the day, it would have been a Watney's Red Barrel, a fag and some crisps. <laughs> and a kid would have just put up with it. Have you ever, when I, God, I remember when I used to smoke, I remember once walking up a hill, smoking a fag and eating a giant bag of Watts's at the same time. <laughs> I'm thinking, God, this isn't good. You know, <laughs> you, when you're out of breath, your mouth is full of Watts's and you're smoking a fag, your mouth is so dry. <laughs> God. Yeah. Again, it's the authenticity of detail. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong crisps wouldn't have been funny. Gotta be the right crisps. No, you're right. And what's this is funnier than crisps? Always. Always yeah. go for detail. Zanussi funnier than a washing machine. Marble Reds. I reckon this, I mean, this book overall is a masterclass in how unconsciously you can know those rules and how yeah. important they are. I think anyone who reads this, if you read a piece of comic uh, writing by Victoria Wood or Sue Townsend, you would understand that everything had been weighed and judged and you might just in awe go, oh, God, that's just good writing. The great thing about this book, I think, is it's encouragement to say you've got those rhythms and those weights in your blood if yeah. you are, as she appears to be, a fan of funny things. Yeah. You will have listened. If you're a good listener, you'll have heard eavesdropped on conversations on buses that have made you laugh. Uh, those lovely collections you see sometimes on Twitter overheard on a bus people will share something yeah. and there'll be a character detail you'll be able to glimpse an entire life through it one of my favourite ones was my friend who's a journalist said he'd overheard on a, on a train oh, morale at the aquarium is at an all time low <laughs> I went, that's a film I'd watch that morale is at the aquarium I think we use it as a headline in Framley oh, there's I'm a whole not story. surprised yeah. but that is what this book's got it says to yeah. you if you listen you hear the weight of words and what makes you laugh and then just learn and copy. Yeah. It's a masterclass. It is. I think I can't think of anyone who wouldn't love this. And when I read it, I just gave it, bought four copies immediately and I I gave them to friends and, and some to my family. And I just think also, if you want to be a comedy writer, if you're a young person, I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. I wish I'd read it when I was like 16, 17. Yeah. And yeah, it makes it seem... It's a very kind book to read, if that makes any sense. It's sort of, it's very warm. Mm. It's not like reading, like I loved Catch-22 when I was like, I remember Catch-22 being like the first funny book that I'd read as an adult, as it were. I was 16, I was at Manchester Youth Theatre and I read it in um, like in, in a very short time and I fucking loved it. I thought it was so funny. But it's a big book. Like mm. it's, it didn't make me think... Maybe one day I could... It's daunting. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I still remember bits of it and I still... So, but w with this, I think because it's so small and nuanced, I think it would have given me confidence to read it and it might have made me write, write a bit if... Yeah, and I think you can't underestimate the value of something like that, really. Yeah, yeah it's... I think you're right. I don't think there's any higher praise you can give a book than that it would entertain you this much and make you think you could do it because that makes yeah, it like it, a it, punk record. Exactly. And it's not that you think you could do it because it's in any way anything less than fantastic. It's that it's a very open book, I think. Yes. And it's like celebrating people's foibles and it feels yeah, it feels like we're all kind of in it together. <laughs> yeah, that humanity. Yeah. What a lovely place to end. A book that makes you glad to be human. Yeah. Izzy, thank you so much for coming. What You're a lovely welcome. Idea. You're welcome. Am I funny? Yes. I think you are. Yeah, thank yes. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Ja. Aber, 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 aber